So welcome back to the show. I'm kind of taking a little bit of a new direction today, and I'm uh, interviewing Mark Warnke from uh, uh, packgoats.com. And honestly, the background with how I ran into Mark is I just ran into uh, ran into his profile on like a I think a backpacking page on Facebook or something, and he was taking he was hiking with goats, and I never even seen that before, and I thought that was like super cool. So I wanted to invite him on the show and and get to know about his lifestyle a bit more because I thought he had like a really cool lifestyle as well and more about like pack goats and uh, hiking and hunting and all that other stuff. So, so welcome to the show, Mark. It's, it's good to see you. We spoke like I think a few months ago. I asked like a few questions about uh, the trips you offer and all that stuff, but it's good to finally like see you on camera and kind of have an opportunity to chat with you today. So welcome. Super. Yeah, no, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So what, um, what got you into uh doing like getting into pack goats and doing all that stuff uh well so my family was young at that time and so my kids were little my wife is a little or my ex-wife now but so maybe it didn't work so well but my she was little physically right so she weighs 110 115 pounds and you know i go into the backcountry a lot hunting and scouting and you know you got to carry a lot of weight 50 kind of 50 pounds minimum and it doesn't matter if you're a little lame, you still kind of got to carry that. That's like that base level of equipment. And yes, you can get down to ultralight stuff at 35, but to do 10 miles a day, being 115 pounds and or being a little kid, it was really difficult to find a way to take the people I love most in the backcountry. So I started exploring different stock options and, and I've had experience with llamas and horses and, you know, frankly, horses are just dangerous. It's a guarantee somebody's going to get hurt sometime. It's just the nature of horses. They're they're expensive and they're dangerous. Uh, and llamas uh, are super expensive and they're a crazy bad pet. They have like zero, negative five personality, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. If they let you, well, touch at least they're them, not at a zero. You know? Right. 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 <laughs> <laughs> they are. They are just not a cool animal. They're very weird. And so, and expensive. And so goats came onto the radar as something that there was a small group of people doing in the United States. And I thought, cool, I had a goat when I was a kid. They were a cool critter. I didn't know they could do that. And then fast forward now eight years, I think I'm probably one of the global authorities on how to unpack goats and invented the gear and, and kind of next level training and breeding and everything else. I just, it, it swept me up rather than me sweeping it up i guess well how is this is this pretty common or is this like something like a new trend that has started because i've never really seen i've seen donkeys being used and obviously horses are have been used for like i don't know hundreds of years but i've never really really seen like people using like a group of goats to carry like equipment or whatever hiking gear they're, they're planning on carrying with them yeah it's it's super uncommon so um you know, when I started, there was maybe 20 people doing it in the United States. <clears throat> the first pack that was thrown on a goat to carry something for somebody was in 1971. And it was a guy named, um, gosh, am I going to forget his name? Anyway, he's a scientist studying bighorn sheep in Wyoming. And he cut a two by four and a half and he cut a shovel handle in four pieces, wired it together with baling twine, hand sewed some duffel bag so it would work on it and had his goat carry his equipment up the mountain and said wow we got something here and that's kind of he was the grandfather of only him doing it till the mid 80s and then some people picked it up but it found it found a usefulness for an adult 
male goat over one year old. And so the farming community kind of grabbed onto it once it became a concept. And so they did it as a 4-H activity. So that's how I kind of think that's what breathed the life into it to get it some exposure is this 4-H community and these kids competing with these pack goats. And really they were just trying to give a, a one-year-old plus male goat a reason to live because before that it was either a pet or butcher, you know, mm -hmm. it was, it didn't really have a purpose in agriculture. And so we as a community now are in the thousands strong and that really has only happened in terms of an acceleration in the last four to five years. And, and I think it's, you know, I have a large profile in the, in the hunting community and hunters are seeing it as a way to get deeper into the back country and successfully be able to pack out a big elk or, or a deer and hunt away from people, you know, on remote back country wilderness areas. Yeah. I always wondered with hunting how I never actually did hunting any hunting myself, but like how it, you would actually carry like all that meat or the organs or even whatever else you decide to take from the animal, like with you, if you're out like way back in the back country, is that like one of the, is that like one of the ways? Uh, it is. Yeah. So if it's not that, it's a backpack, right? You know, one of the concepts that people think is common is hunter waste and they're just, it just isn't. We work awfully hard for the meat that hits the ground and it tastes delicious and it's highly nutritious. So we work really hard to get that meat out and I don't almost know anybody, people, anyone who won't. So there's, there's really two methods. When you drop an 800 pound elk on the ground, it's difficult for two guys to roll him over, let alone carry him out or drag mm -hmm. him out. So you're going to cut him into pieces, right? So you're cutting off the quarters, front legs, rear legs, rib cage, um, you know, back straps, which are the, the stank lines that run down the spine. And then the next level is to actually what we call bone and butcher. So you're fully boning off all the meat and then you're packaging that in bags and then you're packing it out in parts. So an elk, when he hits the ground, two very able-bodied, backpacking, strong guys, it's going to be two trips to get that elk out, no matter how deep you are. Now, you can't do it in one. It's too much. Uh, you end up with almost 300 pounds of meat off an elk, and 150 pounds of load is pretty hard in mm -hmm. high elevation, steep terrain. So almost everybody will do two trips. But I can pack out a full bowl with my goats with, with four goats. So if I could have four goats there with me, they can pack it out. I put corns on my back, and boom, we're out. And they hunt along with me. How do you, how do you keep the meat from spoiling? Like, yeah, that's a great, that's a common question. Um, you know, in the high country at 8,000 feet plus, which is where we're hunting elk in September, uh, the evenings are always, the night times are always dropping, you know, 30 to 45 degrees. And if you can get that meat down to sub 40 degree temperatures that first night, it's actually good in the backcountry for almost a week. You can mm -hmm. keep it hung and creek bottoms and in shade and make sure that you keep the sun off of it. And, you know, it's just a part of the normal aging process actually for me once you've got it chilled. And like other animals, is it not common for other animals to come and pick it up while you're away? on the first Yeah, the, the animals are going to be more attracted or smell more often things like rotting meat or guts. You know, the, the guts stink. Um, rotting meat stinks. That's what things are going to more, you know, be attracted to. So in I, this year I shot my 29th elk with my bow. I've almost hung every single piece of meat, elk and deer. So that's over 50 animals in the back country. Over 30 years of hunting, I've never had one bear in camp disturb the meat. Never once. But 
when I drop an elk on the ground, I pull all this meat off, and then I come back to visit that carcass, there's almost always a bear on that carcass within 24 hours. So that's the difference in the stink of clean, chilled, properly taken care of meat in a camp that has human stink in it too, which they're leery of, versus a dead elk on the ground with his gut spilled out. Mm -hmm. right? So so kind of give you a perspective there. And cougars and wolves are they're they're very wary predators. They're super calculated. A bear's kind of a bumbler. He'll kind of come in and see what's up. A cougar, a wolf, they'll smell what's up from a hundred yards. They'll observe for three days. Is it safe to move in? Then they'll move in. You know, so they're just they're a wary cagey critter by comparison to the bumbler of a bear. Gotcha. Yeah. Hey, for anyone that's looking to kind of get into hunting and I've been kind of looking into it as well, like, is there like a step-by-step -step progression of how to get into it? Because I presume like bow hunting is going to be like the most difficult out of like anything you can do. Is that right? Or am I wrong? For sure. Yeah. Just the, the ability to be successful. So in Colorado, the densest population of elk in the world, the success rate with rifles in there in that 30 to 40% every year. It with archery, it's two to 4%. So it's just that much more difficult when you're limited to 40 yards versus 400 yards, um, you know, in shooting distance and the ability to be accurate. Um, you know, it's not that hard to close 100 yards on a bull elk. It's super hard to close the final 60 to get into 40. Right. That's where, you know, you know, the step on a leaf, one wrong step at 40 yards, everything's over. We're at 100. You can get away with stuff like that. So it's it's exceptionally harder. It's you know, geometrically harder. Gotcha. I wonder what Rambo's success rate is would be with the bow. <laughs> Probably <laughs> like 99.9%. He's like, maybe, maybe. One arrow takes home like 10 animals that season, you know? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, funny. Well, um, go ahead. No, go ahead. What, what were you going to well, say? Well, so to answer your progression question, um, you know, I've actually, I have a company out there that I wanted to start pre-COVID. And we had the wheels rolling because, you know, as a public figure in the hunting industry, who's also watched by the animal loving community, I'm like, you know, cause goats, right? I mean, I, that's the part that people don't get. Your, your, your viewers are the people that are in the general public. Only 7% of the United States has a hunting license. That means 93% don't get it. And I understand why they wouldn't get it. And to see me celebrate, go, hell yeah, when I kill an animal, seems almost atrocious. I, I understand that as an animal lover. As an animal lover, I actually get put in both positions because I don't hire my hitman, right? So, so people who go to the grocery store pay somebody else to kill shit for them, and it's likely that shit that's dying is not dying in a very respectful manner at all, right? But that's okay in their eyes because it's their world, it's their experience. And, and I get it. I don't, I'm not poking them in the ribs or telling them they're wrong. That's just their experience. Well, my experience is that not only do I choose to be my own hitman as a carnivore because I choose to eat meat, I go out and kill birds, fish, and, and large game. My freezer's full of elk and not full of cow. I don't buy chicken. I kill chuckers. And those are the things that, that, that I take as a protein and take into my body. But on top of it, I'm a deeply intimate animal lover. And most non-hunters would be shocked to hear and may even not believe me that almost every hunter I know is, is a deep lover of animals. 
and it's paradoxical that we would want to harvest their life, but that's something that's been put in us as a predator. There's a certain portion of the population that were born as predators. There's others that were supports of those. There's hunter-gatherers. There's, there's the home people that took care of, you know, the gardening and did all that stuff. Those are gifts God gave us to kind of have inside of us as an, an extra, not a missing, right? Mm-hmm. And so with all that being true, um, there is a large portion of the urban societies today that no longer have the ability because we're in third generation here of being separate from the harvest of our own food, right? Our grandfathers, every one of them, if they didn't know somebody who knew how to kill shit, they wouldn't be here right now. So we're just simply three generations away from having to intimately see death on a daily basis to put meat in our body. Three generations later, we literally have people that are so separate from that experience. They just think a chicken magically shows up in a styrofoam wrapper in the grocery store. They don't equate the fact that somebody killed it and gutted it and it was raised to die. Yeah. So, you know, I think my experience is a little more intimate. On top of it, as an animal lover, I don't think it's fair for me with my goats that worked for me for 12 years, worked their guts out, were my companion, for me to ask some vet to come over and give them a shot and kill them, and then I'm going to put them in a hole. It seems super disrespectful. So for my pets, the animals I love, I, I feed them a grain of buck, a bucket of grain, I shoot them in the head, I cut their legs and arms and meat off. I feed my family with it and I pray over it and thank it for what it did for me. And then I bury it respectfully. So am I bad for doing that? I don't think so. I'm just in touch, right? So that part of me that can be that bridge between animal lovers, urban society, because I get that part because I'm no dumb dumb. And then as well, you know, I can get my hunt on and redneck with the rest of them. But at the same time, who's bridging that gap for somebody like you who's a well-thought young man potentially living in a city and doesn't have a mentor to teach him how to hunt, but has a desire to gather their own meat and not to buy from the grocery store? So I started a company called Hunting University, and it was going to be where I take people, come with me, I'll take you on a hog hunt or a doe hunt where it's low cost, and I can teach you the nuances of how to kill for yourself, and I'll teach you how to butcher, I'll teach you how to shoot, I'll teach you what thing to get, and at least you'll get a start with somebody who can teach you how, and then I'll try to help you launch on your own path to find out where you live, right? So, you know, that we have a huge hog and white-tailed doe problem in, this United, in the United States. We could feed a lot of hungry people if more people just knew how to kill them, right? Mm-hmm. But people like yourself just, they don't have that mentor, they don't have that buddy, that, and there is no really online learning program yet. So we hope to do that. At the same time, I'm not money-driven anymore. and That takes a lot of work, and, you know, and we'll see how well that goes kind of post-COVID and see if, you know, that fire gets lit in me again. I'm sure somebody will do it out there, but currently I'm not aware of a program that can make that possible for people. But I mentor people, so that's I guess that's possible. Yeah, I guess regarding your comment about, like, kind of people that consume me but look at the same time look down on hunters, you know, like the hunting community, I always kind of wondered, like, a lot of times when people brought that up with me, uh, I always kind of mentioned, like, oh, you know, like, you're kind of supporting an or like, basically, if you're shopping at places like Costco or any supermarket, you're supporting, like, a factory farm type vertically integrated business model. You know, it's like these animals basically live in, like, Nazi concentration camp type environments, so you can get meat for, like, two bucks cheaper. So you're okay with having them, you know, live a life of misery to basically be able to pay, to save $2, you know, on meat and to have like a meal that 
this satisfies you for like that one or two minutes you're eating it and then you're going to need another meal but that's like that was like their whole entire life in existence you know mm -hmm. and then you tell them like well what's the alternative of this wild animal like if the hunter doesn't you know instantly kill the wild animal they either get eaten by other animals which is a pretty brutal way to die in my opinion or they just like die of old age in like the wilderness which is still like a very brutal way to die as well you know so it's like their two paths of ending is like not that great you know what i mean right and, uh, so what I, I always found like once i brought it up like under that vantage point it's not like very there's not, not much to argue about you know agree no it's it's well put and and the only thing i'd add to that because you you delineated it really really well is that the next level would be then to talk about death in itself and we have in some ways created death as a negative experience mm -hmm. and in terms of the in terms of how you look at it spiritually wherever you look at it all spiritual contexts celebrate birth and death as equals mm -hmm. yet we've in current society we've deemed dying as bad both for ourselves and anything else because we have a generated society now that's so entrenched in comfort so how do i always stay comfortable warm well-fed entertained with the least amount of effort and the most amount of energy gain how do i do that well problem is is that we are evolved based on discomfort we're not supposed to be comfortable all the time. And we learn from our greatest mistakes and greatest discomforts. You know, a hundred years ago, we would have washed our grandparents' body with our own fucking hands, dug the hole and laid him in there and probably maybe witnessed the death. And by our ages, we would have witnessed the death of a sibling. We would have definitely witnessed the death of a parent and a grandparent. And we certainly would have had death going around on us on a daily basis because we had to kill a chicken, right? So we have this, where we, we want it to all happen behind this white door now and have it be all cozy and whatever. Well, death isn't cozy and it is intended for us to learn from. So that's the only thing I would say to that as well is modern nature is the only one who still hasn't deemed a certain death more worse than another. Yes, she's cruel. She makes animals die in awful ways, but she's doing it the most naturally. We're the ones that are buffering this shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, death definitely completes the life cycle. Without it, you mm -hmm. basically life stops too, you know? So <laughs> right. it comes from the soil, and then eventually you lay down on it, and the fungi eat you up, and you go right back into the soil. Right. So it's like, sure. it continues. And without that part, it's like there is no cycle because there is no life. So, sure. Um, so yeah, uh, I kind of forgot what I was going to ask you. I, was, uh, I, had a, I had a question in mind, but you brought up some good points, and I kind of spaced out on it. Uh, yeah oh yeah what i was yeah what i was going to get get down to saying it's like basically like how long has the homo sapien been around for they've been around for about like two hundred thousand years and you know for like 190 of those thousand years they didn't have like a, a civilization to settle down and they're basically living like a nomadic lifestyle like without like vaccines medicines life coaches nutritionists personal trainers or whatever whatever else gurus are out there and they're all jacked and they're all thriving. And then mm -hmm. when you, even if you take out child mortality out of the question, they all lived until like their 50s or 60s, like in full mm -hmm. health, you know? Wow. Mm -hmm. And then now it's like, it's like even tough to find maybe like a 30 year old that is, uh, that is able to uh, like do really that anything that much impressive with their physique or like anytime you walk out in America, like a lot of times like nine out of 10 people you run into are full of obesity and disease, you know? Like full mm -hmm. of like mental and physical pain. Yeah, right. like it goes back to like what is that comfort really mm -hmm. producing? You know, it's producing a lot of discomfort and a lot of 
in a lot of ways as well. So going back to your comment that you mentioned. Oh, it's super true. It's super true. You know, I don't, I don't know if you know in my background, I was nationally competitive in a thing called train to hunt, which is really like a Spartan race for bow hunters. Right. So, and I competed a bit against Ben Greenfield, you know, Ben. Oh yeah. Ben I've written some articles from. Yeah. So, so Ben's a client of mine, good dude. Uh, you know, when I was competing with him in the same competitions, I was in my early forties, I'm 50 now. Um, and he was early thirties. I think I'm exactly 10 or 11 years older than him. And what was really, really shocking to me is that, you know, Ben at that time was going to Hawaii every year, and, you know, the triathlons and he was, you know, literally, you know, nationally competitive in the open class and I was in kind of the old dude class. I was in the senior class. Now what was interesting to me is that there was a portion of our competition where it was purely run and you know run obstacles and do all that stuff and carry weight and backpacks and rigmarole. Anyway, at that time I was really starting to struggle with my training because as you age you just recover less, right? I have to have way more focus on recovery. I'm doing things like yoga, I'm spending 30 minutes stretching, I'm doing all the things that I used to poo-poo just to be able to do what I do today, right? Yeah, right? you're like, now I spend 30 minutes working out and two hours recovering from that workout. You know? Totally, totally, you know, and, and I'm 50 and I still got it, you know, and I stay lean and, you know, all that stuff, but at the same time, I just can't train as hard as I used to. Mm -hmm. So so when I was going against Ben and, and I beat him in that competition in terms of time, and, and I really wasn't like hoorah, or I wasn't excited about that, but I was interested to know why. There's no way I was as strong as he was. There's no way I trained as hard as he did because I can't. There's no way I'm processing nutrition as efficiently as him because I know I'm not. I don't have the endocrine system. I don't have the cellular cycles. I just don't have that. What's the difference? And the difference is grit. It's how much pain am I willing to accept before I tell my muscles, okay, okay, I fucking hear you, you're tired, right? And it's really interesting for me to pay attention to that component of grit, right? I, I do a lot of walking mountains, I mean, you know, almost 500 miles a year in the backcountry, in my boots, on trails at 9,000 feet plus, taking people in there. And I can take an 80-year-old guy who isn't really fit with tons of grit and he can kick the ass of a 30-year-old guy who's super fit, who's a wussy. I'm, I'm telling you, grit is, is something that I don't know if we have these discomfort mechanisms going on in our society anymore. They don't happen as naturally. It's almost like we have to manufacture them through sports, right? Mm -hmm. Sports, but there is the emotional, spiritual component of life. I mean, it doesn't matter how sophisticated we get. Life kicks our ass. We're using these things like screens and drugs and you know mind-altering substances to make us like miss the really beautiful parts of struggle emotionally and spiritually. But physically, we don't have a way to get around it except for to not engage anymore. And we have a larger population that aren't engaging. So I'm wondering where our toughness is going, unless it was just through sports or through things like the military or things whatever, those things that push us physically. I mean, do you have that one moment that you remember in your life? Mine was I was on a, you know, football two-a-days was, was the hardest thing I ever did. Then the next hardest thing I ever did was um, I was on a fishing boat in Alaska in my early 20s, and it kicked my fucking ass for like six weeks. 
and my elevation about what I could actually get through like went up. I didn't realize that I was capable of that much grit until mm -hmm. I was forced to, right? So I'm sure you remember that time in your life where you're like, man, that was so hard, but it taught me grit. And I think we're missing those things nowadays. Yeah, I guess that all started with basically, um, you know, the government, I think it was like in 1920, trying to aggressively get Ameri American males out of the farming lifestyle and into more of like a blue, like a white collar work, you know? So mm -hmm. just to kind of boost the GDP basically and all that stuff. Uh, and yeah, so obviously, when a person doesn't doesn't need those skills, the the body tries to conserve, you know, the central nervous system tries to conserve its energy and calories and efforts into doing as as least as possible to be as uh, as efficient as possible. So if a person is just sitting at like a computer all day, all of a sudden they don't need a lot of testosterone, you know. So the body mm -hmm. will die down its efforts of producing testosterone, bring it back down, and then obviously then you have a cascade of hormonal effects that don't benefit you aesthetically or physically uh yeah in regards to that question i think there's also the, the environmental factor obviously if you're running in the mountain running around in the mountains all day and like this person is a gym fitness person and you're like a mountain person and they try to probably compete with you in the mountains they probably won't like last a second i remember climbing like mount hua in central china in 2011 and there's like literally like this 80 year old chinese guy that started at the base of the mountain with me and he was carrying they're built they're like repairing some temple at the top or something like that and he was carrying like these huge five gallon jugs on his back like two of them and then like random stuff around his waist and i just had like some 10 pound backpack with snacks in it you know and even <laughs> he beat me to the top of the mountain <laughs> i'm like man like I'll surpass him and then he would like he would overall go slower but just consistently keep going you know and it's like Interesting. You know, turtle versus the rabbit or whatever and he sure. I took a picture of that guy I'm like man this guy's a beast you know he's like <laughs> he's like 90 he's like probably like five five like 90 pounds too <laughs> I was like wow so <laughs> probably cool. the bulk majority of his weight was around his beard and that's like that's about it you know? <laughs> I'm like oh man okay. I need to go back to the drawing board after this one <laughs> that's really that, there's a couple of things that you mentioned there that were super interesting but one that speaks out to me was uh it, it's actually something that i commonly have to like talk with people about right because there is this i don't know what it is i guess i did it when i was younger too when you're climbing a mountain the best way i call it my everest walk right i can outwalk anybody and preserve more energy by slowing down and doing a shuffle step walking mechanism up the mountain than that big stride mm -hmm. big step fast <laughs> recover then do it again then recover the other thing that we try to do when we're back there is to not get sweaty so when we're and i'm a sweaty dude so i can just soak everything fast right so i will try to keep that set that heart rate down and that sweaty factor down just so i'm not soaking my underlayers um, because again i get up on top then i'm in wind and i'm trying to glass or you know do whatever uh you know it's it's about sweat preservation but also i can consistently outcline people in the same way that that i did is just by slowing down and doing a methodical never give up never need a break walk and when i find that pace that's the right pace right so i think that pace is faster for some people um but i consistently find that people that don't use that style have the same struggle that you did and i'd be curious if you were to go back and walk in with him the very next day, if you just matched his pace, you, if you would have been able to keep up. I'm, I'm super curious about that. I just don't know. 
Well, after after that, I actually ran into like a method of running called like chi running. This is when I was more into like, chi as in like chi. Yeah, chi running. Uh, and uh, it's a very popular technique. I forgot the uh, the guru or whatever that that teaches this technique, but it teaches you kind of how to relax your body while running, progressively yeah. relax more and more. And mm -hmm. once I kind of learned that, like endurance events became like a lot easier. Uh, mm -hmm. Where before I was just using like a lot of like muscle to power through like runs or like tough spots, but actually like he preaches, uh, it's kind of tough to describe in short, but how to relax, how to relax your body like deeper and deeper, the more tired you get and use like less energy to move forward, but keep moving consistently. It's interesting. like, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's like uh, fairly easy to implement once you, once you learn it and then just get a lot of practice time in. But regarding your topic, I totally forgot the name of the book. It's been like 10 years since I read it, but it was written by a very popular green beret that served in Vietnam for like, I don't know, like five years straight. Uh, he didn't even come home for like five years and he won mm -hmm. like the most medals. I forgot the exact medal of honor being one of them, but some other medals as well. And no one has won that combination of medals uh, since him. And his, his responsibility was basically teaching the indigenous uh, Indians in Vietnam to fight against like the communists. And mm -hmm. he mentioned like basically all you have to do is teach them how to shoot an M16 because they live like in the mountains on lava rocks their entire life. They can literally like do everything, like run forever, like climb mountains really fast. Like they even had like such like calcified feet that when you would try to like put medicine like in their feet, like inject a needle through their foot, it, the needle would just break because their feet were like so calcified and they could just like run super fast on lava rocks without even any shoes. Wow. Anyway, so it's just like the importance of kind of like really being like embedded in the environment you're trying to excel in. To, yeah, there's no question. You know, it's just like me. When I get back into the gym after hunting season, I feel like I've lost tremendous ground. You know, it's but but I haven't. I'm just changing changing how I'm training. You know, so so that's I, I agree with you. It is a, as it is about you know kind of what you do on a daily daily basis and how you do it. And it's you know what's interesting too because you'll find this intriguing. So the, the when I started with pack goats. The, the saying was, is, is that if you're going to go use pack goats, you need to smell the flowers because they're slow. And I can see why the pack goat community thought that before I had it been involved, because I was, you know, again, a nationally competitive athlete at that time. And I don't do anything slow, right? I like to be working hard even when I'm walking, right? And so I walk fast. And so my goats drove me crazy that they were slow. So I said, you know what? I got to trade these goats. They think they are human. They think I'm a goat. So I'm going to teach them from when they're little that goats walk fast. So I started piddle jogging with them. So I go on runs with my goats once a week. Believe me, it's the funniest looking thing for to see me come around the corner with 11 big ass goats with horns running on a trail in Boise. But that's what I do. And so my goats now have an assumption that we're on a trail. We're fast. We, we walk fast or we run. And, you know, when I put a load on them, then we walk, but we still walk quick. And I was right. It was just a matter of training and keep getting them used to what the pace was that I wanted. And they're awesome. They, they went from an animal that was genetically engineered to, you know, flee from danger by climbing something that something else couldn't, right? And then fighting it off from above to an animal that is not geared towards endurance, but you know, I did a 20 mile day this year with those guys. They, they packed out two bowls with my string. Um, we did 20 miles in a day, and that's that's just a lot. I don't know if you've ever 
walked that far in the mountains in one day, but we did like 7,000 feet in game and did 21.6 miles. So, and they did it with me and nobody was sore. Nobody was beat up. Everybody's really good. And they were kind of like ready to go the next day. So, and, but that came from months and months of training in the back country and having them be super fit. So fitness matters for them too. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. That's funny. Like, I wonder what your neighbors say when they like see you running with all these goats. They're like, oh, there's team 666 again, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Again, it's Tuesday, you know? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, probably. The apocalypse is on the tray. Yeah. yeah. Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out this podcast. If sourcing high quality food is something you're interested in, but definitely find the subject matter confusing, check out my book on Amazon titled Anti-Factory Farm Shopping Guide. It's a very easy and non-technical read that's beautifully illustrated and comes with a comprehensive video series and other extended learning material. The book, in a very simplified way, breaks down the difference between caged, cage-free, free-range, and pasture-raised meats. It'll cover how to avoid GMOs, source high-quality water, fish, supplements, and many other related topics. Thanks again for checking out the podcast, and when you have a second, please check out Anti-Factory Farm Shopping Guide by Evgeny Trufkin on Amazon. Regarding your fitness routine, what's that like? What do you do to keep in shape? Like, Because I, I know like with what you're doing, I know for sure you have to keep in shape all year round. It's not like something you could just try to get ready for like two weeks before and then mm -hmm. everything is going to be okay. So you have to basically take care of yourself for your entire life to be able to do that stuff. So what's, yeah. what's your kind of like routine like? Let's start with that. And I'm curious what your diet is like too. Sure, sure. So I've been, so I'm one of those guys that at 30 could, eat and drink whatever I wanted and never gain a pound to when I was 40, all of a sudden I went, whoa, it matters what I eat. And now at 50, holy shit, I could put in 10 pounds in fat eating in 30 days. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. so susceptible to it. And I'm highly conscientious of fat, not because of how it makes me look aesthetically, but it's 10 more pounds I have to pack up the mountain. Mm -hmm. So I try to be very lean. I try to be in about the 12% range. That's kind of my sweet spot where I'm lean enough to where I'm not packing much weight up. I also try to restrict my muscle build. I don't want to be too muscular because that also is bulky weight and stuff that has to be supplied blood and oxygen. Mm -hmm. So I try to build myself kind of after that Spartan racing body. Um, but I try to not have a peak, right? Cause when you tear yourself down and then rebuild yourself up for a competition, that's a consistent tear down methodology, right? Be being competitive innately has a breaking down part of it over time. And it's one of the pieces I had to stop. I had to, I had to stop being competitive because I, I was hurting myself. And mm -hmm. it, it ended up my pinnacle moment was rupturing the disc in L4, L5 and having to have that. Right, my injury. Yeah. I think that one's really common though. So I hate it is, it is. Yeah. So I had to have surgery. I got a lumectomy and a disectomy and, and, and then I have had stem cell injections and that helped a lot. But I have a fragile back that I have to be constantly wary of now in posture and everything. And the more weight I carry, the more stress it puts on that. So I don't ever let my get out, myself get out of shape and I don't ever let myself get fat. So how do I do that at 12% body fat and still actually enjoy my life, right? Because I still want to enjoy what I put in my body. 
I don't want to feel like I'm in deprivation mode all the time. Working out is rewarding. Eating well, it's hard. It's the hard part, right? For me, at least. So in terms of my workout, um, I do a three to four days a week with uh, an upper lower and an mm -hmm. emphasis on using hit training throughout. I do almost very little endurance training. Most of the endurance training I do, I do on mountain bikes so that I'm low impact on my joints. Okay, yeah. I do still run, um, but I'm conscientious not to run too often because I can feel the difference on my body overall and wear and tear versus when I bike. But I know I need that small stabilization muscle in my feet and my knees. And, you know, I need to have that core fitness to take that jar so I can't just ignore it, but I don't want to use it as a cornerstone of my fitness. So I do my endurance training on a bike. I supplement with a little bit of running and then I lift. And when I lift, I lift all functional fitness, multi-joint movements, right? So I'll still do full-blown squats. I'll still do some light, some heavy. I'll do slow movement. I don't really do any explosion movements anymore because, again, those movements, you know, I mean, my spine surgeon had a really good piece of wisdom. He said, Mark, in your exercise routine, the word explosion shouldn't exist anymore. You just can't do that stuff. But I can do things like peacock in, in yoga. I can do moves that only very advanced yoga people can do because – my core, I work super hard to make sure it's there to support it. So I'll do push-pull routines. So I'll do a lot of push and then pull and push and then pull. And then I'll do a hit train. And I'd be pretty repetitious with my hit train um, because I like the grit of it and I like the duration of it. So if I'm going to try to blast out something that's going to create cardiovascular fitness for me, I'm going to try to get it most in the short amount of time as I can. So I do the 90% effort uh, for one minute and then 50% effort for one minute for 10 cycles. And it is easily the hardest thing I do. And I do it on the stair climber because the stair climber is the hardest sweat in the gym to me. So I will run. If you run a stair climber, it has like zero through 20. Most of them do as a setting. I'll put it on 20 for a minute. So I'm running the stair climber. Then I'll back it down to, to 10 where I'm walking faster mm -hmm. while I recover. Then I go up to 20 again. And again, I do just 10 minutes of that. That's the hardest thing I do in the gym by a mile. That takes so much grit. It's so flipping hard. And every hunting season, I lose some ground and then I recover throughout the year. And I pay attention to my standing heart rate. And, and it usually goes in the, when I'm out of shape, it'll go for 164 when I'm at full blast, barely recovering. And then I'll drop down to like 156, 157 is where when I know I'm starting to get to the level of VO2 max and fitness that I'm looking for. So that's like my my measurement stick of my, you know, my my ability to transmit and, and process sugars and, you know, cellular recovery and use of oxygen. That's like my little measuring stick. And then on the dietary level, uh, I, I have found a home in this system to stay lean. And it's, I use a cheat day on Wednesday night and I cheat on Saturday. Um, I have a moderate protein, high fat on all the remaining days with almost an absence of, of uh, carbs. So I'll take in maybe max 40 to 50 carbs. It's kind of an intermittent keto, uh, keto but not really because I never really quite get there. I always stay right on the cusp. 
I blood tested. I did six months of keto. It was so restrictive. I just, I hated eating eight items and it just wasn't long-term sustainable. So for me, I eat super strict Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday at dinner. I'm going to have ice cream. I'm going to have spaghetti. I'm going to have whatever I want so I can feel human again. Then I'm really regimented up till Saturday. Saturday, I get up, I make pancakes and I make muffins and you know, then I have a burger at lunch and I have whatever the frick I want at dinner. And then Sunday, I'm right back on my routine. And you know, I'm a 50-year-old guy that's ripped and, and fit and stay light. And I still feel like I can give to myself. But if I get more restrictive than that, then I blow my program. And my program is really relying on fitness and food. If my food falls off, my fitness yeah. falls off. If my fitness falls off, my food falls off. They're really, they have to be together to really function well. So that's my system. Yeah, and that's great to hear that you're like 50 and still in like really good shape. I hate when like people come up to me and they say like, oh, you know, like after 30, like it's impossible to lose fat or after 40, it's impossible to lose body fat. I'm like, no, man, <laughs> that's not how it works. It's like actually pretty damn easy to do if you're like living a health conscious lifestyle, you know, sure. and like yeah, semi sure. taking care of yourself, not even being like ultra disciplined. If you're sure. ultra disciplined, then it's like still easy to be like pretty ripped even in your old age. I mean, it is. Guys like Paul Check, I think he's like pushing 60 now, still deadlifting like three plates on each side for like reps, and he's like super ripped, you know? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it's possible for sure. Well, how's how's your lifestyle like? Uh, do you have um, do you have like other forms of work outside of doing the hunting company plus the back coat? Uh, uh, pack coat, uh, blah, blah, blah. Pack coats. Pack yeah. coats, sorry. Those things, those two words kind of flow into each other, man. They do, <laughs> yeah, no worries. Uh, so I've been a lifelong time seeker over a money seeker. I retired early in life uh, before 2008 and 9. That economy, when it flipped upside down, I saw my network evaporate. I had to start over again. Mm. So I built a second company after that. Um, now I'm resting on the laurels of that success. I'm not retired. I still work hard, but despite building, you know, really kind of, I, I actually started over three times. Uh, and the most recent time was just a couple of years ago when I ruptured my disc and got a divorce in the same year. And, you know, I, I that was like a do over because, you know, she kind of got everything and willingly, she's not a turd. I just, I felt it was my duty to take care of her. I had to start over again. So for me, time and money and lifestyle are all synchronous, you know, they're synchronized. And uh, I wrote a best-selling book way back in the day called Ono. And it's like yeah. a, a book called Options, Not Obligations, because that's how I've always lived my life. I always want to get up every morning and ask myself, what do I want to do? Oh, cool. I want to work today. I want to flourish and create abundance. Or what do I want to do? Okay, today I want to go hunt pheasants, or I want to golf, or I want to go play with my kids. So I want a life surrounded with options. And the only way to do that is to not have money dictating my future, right? So for me, it was about figuring out how to have life work for me that way. So I decreased my need for consumption. I increased my, my ability to produce income. And I broke the rule that told me I had to work all the time, right? Mm -hmm. why, why is that a rule? I don't have to work all the time. I can actually consume less make more money in a shorter period of time, do what I want. So since I was 22 years old, I've taken six months off a year, every single year of my life. I've never worked more than six months. And that's been what's created one hell of a photo album, a lot of deep relationships, a ton of personal growth and the things that matter. So I, 
I wrote in my book at that time, I say, you know, what am I trying to really do, right? When, when, when I walk this earth, what am I trying to achieve? And, and I said, well, what's the human measure of achievement? And, I, and so I thought about that and I thought, well, what somebody reads about you when you die, your eulogy, is probably a pretty good measure of what you did, right? When your brother or your mother or your child or your best friend reads, this is who Mark was, what would that say? And then can I actually engineer my life to pre-write that for me? Right. If I want to have a life that is written in a certain way, well, what, why don't I start right now? Right. So what I recognized is that in eulogies, they never mention the size of the house you live in, how much money is in the bank, what kind of car you drive and what you do for work. No, it never fucking even gets talked about. So why do we spend eight to 10 hours a day in our whole entire adult life? pursuing something that we're never even going to talk about in the most poignant moment of human existence. It's fucking stupid. So for me, I just said, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. I want to have memories. I want to have relationships. I want to grow. I want to evolve. I want to meet interesting people and see the world and, and do all that. And if you think that's lazy, well, I don't give a shit. You know, I just, I don't think it's lazy. I work harder than anybody I know playing or working. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just, I just, I wasn't willing to do it by the way people told me. And so lifestyle every morning and, and I decide what I'm going to do that day. Am I going to go have fun or I'm going to create abundance. And today I got up this morning and said, I'm going to create abundance. And as a result of the work that I did today, I decided to go on a Belize boat fishing trip in two weeks because I can, you know, and not because I'm a lucky member of the sperm club, not because daddy gave me a bunch of money, I was raised. I got a Google shit. sperm club now. Probably nothing too great. Well, I call it the lucky. I call it the lucky sperm club when you you know you inherit your wealth, right? Yes. Which I don't I don't begrudge either. Good for those people. You know, yes. do something great with your life. But I, I you know I wasn't given money. I had to create it myself. I'm not all that in a bag of potato chips. I just had a clear path from a young age and knew what I wanted, and that was time. I wanted to buy my time by not working. No, that's that's totally admirable. And actually, even to this day, I run into very little people that are in that mindset. I had that kind of thought pattern when I finished college as well. Um, before college, I was just going to get like a normal normal job, you know, like going to corporate office, et cetera, et cetera. But then I was actually personal training still part-time though, just like 10 hours a week or something through college, uh, just because it was like flexible hours and I enjoyed doing it and it was like, interesting but one thing i've noticed is like man uh working with people after you've seen them be in like a corporate environment for like 20 or 30 years it's just the amount of like mental and physical pathology that arises in most of them i was like man that's not like a life i want because i feel it doesn't even provide you with the physical security that you typically would go into that occupation to acquire you know like a lot of people mm -hmm. would go in there for the consistent paycheck or like medical benefits or whatever, you know, or social prestige. But I feel like at the end of the day, it's kind of like all those people just developed a lot of health problems, you know, or a lot of like physical and mental health problems as well. And I feel it's, it really doesn't in the long term even provide you with that security for the most part. I'm sure it, it fits well with some personalities, but I don't, I don't think it's just like a good environment for like the bulk majority of people. I just don't think people should be living that way, you know? Sure, sure. And you're right. There are some people that are a natural fit to that. 
But do you have children? No, no kids. Yeah, no. So, so you'll you'll see your children. Your children will make you a superhero that can do anything. And if that anything is that you see that the best path towards financial security and safety for them is to log your hours in a cubicle, you'll do it, right? So, so you know, there's been points in my life where I've drifted from that to be things to people that are people in places and entities that are bigger than me that I have a calling towards. And I think in some ways our society has been really driven to create an expectation of how we go about that to create safety and security. And some people just don't have that reference point to know that those things are even an option, right? If you're raised by a dad who spent 30 years and went from bagger to running the grocery store, then that's likely what you're going to see as your potential path as well. And so I, I really get what you're saying. At the same time, I have the same level of respect for the grit and resolve. In fact, maybe more so for that guy that's willing to saddle up to that for his wife and for his kids. He's a fucking superhero. That's hard. That's really, really hard. Um, maybe my life choices gave me some few more options and, and, you know, that sort of thing. But I'm certainly, if anything, if anything, he's got more grit than me. Um, I just make, you know, I, I'm also a recovering alcoholic. I got sober at like 22. So I've been sober like, you know, long time now, 28 years. Um, and uh, I uh, often a lot of people, because I'm fairly open to share about it. And I don't have any, uh, I don't have any shame or, you know, embarrassment or any of that sort of thing. And so I'll say, you know, that, that and a lot of people are like, hell yeah, dude, way to go. And I'm like, you know, if you really knew, it was just because I was a wussy. I couldn't take the pain of being an alcoholic. I mean, one of the, the blessings of being an alcoholic is that it rears your head in your life and it makes it so fucking unbearable that you really only have three choices. Die, go to jail, or fucking get sober. I mean, it's really like the only three. The eventuality, you're going to arrive at one of those three places if you're a long-term alcoholic. And I just... I, I couldn't take the, the mediocrity of life. I couldn't take knowing that I could be doing better. I couldn't take feeling like I had to say sorry to somebody because I was a drunk idiot the night before. The, the lower level stuff got me before I had to ruin a house and lose my fortune and you know ruin my marriage or whatever because I was a drinker. Um, so when people say good on you, well, yeah, okay, yeah, I took the step. I could be the guy with a you know, signing my hand on the grocery store corner too. I could have made that choice. I mean, I know what the gutter smells like. I know what it looks like. I've been there. I didn't choose to stay there, but it was really because I just couldn't take it. I couldn't take life sucking that much, you know? So when I see some guy saddle up to that, I got kind of, I got props for them. That's hard. That's hard. It's hard to dig a fucking ditch for 30 years. That's hard. And what I'm doing is kind of easy. I just got another path. Gotcha. Yeah, I guess there's always kind of like if it's taking you, if it's like one thing you have to do to reach like a greater goal, you could look at it that way. I always kind of looked at it like sometimes like, oh, you know, like, of course, like it's something you can do. But I find like sometimes like, like people use their kids as an excuse to stay in that path because they're too afraid to try anything. So they mm -hmm. always use the, oh, it's because I have kids. That's why I don't want to try anything else. But in reality, the truth is just they're too afraid to try something else. They sure. kind of hide behind the objective reality which is true you know kids need money they need time etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, but i feel like sometimes it could be used like as a scapegoat you know and so can tons of things yeah, yeah i would agree yeah but you'd be surprised i think i think you'll see that 
you know, there's a form of human evolution that can only occur when we are willing to sur surpass the largest human instinct, which is self-preservation, right? The first, the first order of business is to keep me alive every single day. And when you present me with the opportunity to die or live, it's always going to be live, right? So that's the highest thing in hierarchy of human needs is to keep existing. But yet a child is so special that it's the one entity that walks the planet that almost universally we would give up our lives for as our own child. That's fucking magic. There's something extra there. There's something in the evolutionary process as human beings that we can only achieve when we experience parenthood. Parenthood is like, kind of like the, the final stage. And they, they talk about this hierarchy of human events that form us. So the death of a child is, is the highest level of, of mourning, right? I mean, you lose a child. I understand how that could wreck you the rest of your life. I get it. I, I, that's awful. I can't imagine it. You know, so yeah, it's, it's, yeah, ch ch children are something that are, are six billion times as amazing. And I'll tell you, I was a 51-49. I was 51% against having kids and 49 for it. And my wife, uh, you know, I chose to do it to support her. And I knew it was a choice of self-sacrifice. And I didn't really know if I wanted to self-sacrifice that much. I kind of like doing what I wanted to do all the time, you know? Mm -hmm. So I get why people wouldn't have them. And at the same time, I'm so glad I did because I couldn't evolve without it. Exactly. Well, how do you manage uh, mm -hmm. with your active outdoor lifestyle and are your kids older now or like what age are they uh i have 16 year old and 12 year old okay so still like pretty young do you take them uh, on the, do you take them on the trips with you and stuff like that or yeah jake Jaken, my older son is my camp cook he likes packing in with me he kind of you know he he's actually going to be probably running his own trips this next year he's a he's a stud he's just that kid that hit the ground and already knew where he should be going when he was little and he just He's smart and he's hardworking and he's honest and he's just got it going on. And then my younger son, he's got that different spirit where he kind of gets bounced around in life and 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 he and I have a harder time relating, right? I don't I don't love him any less or any more. Uh, and he and I have a deep connection, but he's also in that 12 year old stage of you know being hormonal and kids are cooler and and he's also been really really fucking hammered by COVID. This whole COVID shut him in, put him in front of a screen. In mm. some ways, he's like lost himself to a screen now. It's like, uh, it's this, it's this really, I'm really, you know, I have a hard time really not being angry about what we've done to modern society to make our kids so scared to go outside that they're now parked in front of a screen eight hours a day. It's, it's just been devastating for my youngest son. I think some kids are, have been, adaptive to it but man i don't know i've just literally seen him in a short period of time be a different human being now and not you know and he's, he's really struggling with it so it's it's really hard for me to see that and you know i'm sure you can sense my energy i'm just super frustrated with the feeling like i don't know what to do you know that's that there's nothing worse than that for an a-type personality who pretty much has A, B, C, and B in place. Mm -hmm. I don't even know where to fucking start right now with that stuff. It's just, it's like the screen has him. It's really a hard thing. It's a, it's a phenomenon that's across the country right now, and it's not being talked about. But there's a lot of parents who just don't know what to do right now. What's what state do you live in? Idaho. 
Idaho, gotcha. And you guys like uh, all on lockdown now, or what are the rules? No, we're, we're in fact people have sports here in Idaho. They'll come here for like wrestling tournaments and stuff like that because we're one of the states that's actually allowing for the most freedom. So our our restaurants are open, but the kids are still. You know, the, the, the government's the government. So the government has them all shut down still because that's mm. what the CDC says. So in terms of our entrepreneurial spirit and our business, thank God we're thumbing our nose at the people who want us to be so scared of this stupid shit. And, but the kids are still super subjected to it and they are being forced to bow to the will of this fear stuff. And, and, and as a result, their educations are being harmed. Their personalities are being harmed and their ability to, build new friends or keep ones are super low and you know kids kids are made to play with kids you know it's it's a hard place to be right now it's it's really hurting kids gotcha so are you living like kind of in like a semi-off grid kind of setup or do you live like in the somewhere on the outskirts no i live in, I, I live you know close to the city i'm kind of on the edge and uh you know i have two acres i have 20 goats i milk six gallons a day i sell you know, milk to my neighbors and I have chickens and I have what you would consider an urban farm. I mean, I'm, I'm known by both professionally and, and by my community as the goat guy. So, you know, I'm just the goat guy and, you know, cause people, I mean, they, people don't know even what a goat is anymore. They just don't. I mean, it's, it's how far away we've gotten from our agricultural mm -hmm. roots. Even here in Idaho, I'll walk around the corner and people will ask me this constantly, if you can imagine. They'll say, what is that? And I'm like, it's a goat. Really? You don't know what a goat looks like? It's a goat, right? They, there literally is a large portion of society when shown a goat in front of them is not sure if it's a goat or not, which I just find so amazing. But I guess, you know, if it's existing, then it is. But yeah, so I live on the edge of the city. And luckily, you know, we have a very conservative kind of small town feel in our city. And you know, Boise's the capital, so I'm, you know, I'm in the biggest city in Idaho, but it's still Idaho, you know, it's not San Francisco. Gotcha. Well, are you currently offering uh, any tours for the pack goats, or is uh, there yeah. any rules yeah. on that? No, 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 no. I, I work through outfitters in the area, so I actually am the guide. I'm not the outfitter. Um, but no, clients can book trips with me. Um, you know, I would say that I'm... I'm not cheap, I'm kind of expensive, but again, I don't think that, I think that every single person, and I, I wish I could make it more affordable, I just, I literally am only willing to sacrifice so much of that personal, super deeply personal time that I have in the backcountry, which if you think about it, I can't get into the high country until like late June, early July, and then hunting season starts September 1. So that means I have eight weeks, eight weeks to do what I'm like, most love. So if I give away three of those eight weeks to clients, to me, they have to, it has to be high value, right? So, you know, it costs, you know, minimum four grand and usually four to eight grand to go with me on a three or four day trip. But we feed you great food. You're going to see country like you've never seen before. The campfire talk is, isn't tough guy talk. It's real talk. Um, and I have still yet not to have people you know, I take photography while I'm on the trip. I build people this beautiful book to remember it by. And consistently, the families that I take, their common is it's the best family trip we've ever been on. I mean, I, I don't know where you could go for four or five days anywhere on a trip with your family of 
you know, four people and have it cost less than five or six grand anyway. So might as well come with me, put your screens away, put your gadgets away and, and come start kind of rebirthing yourself in the woods through, you know, through fishing and being in high mountain lakes and beautiful places and working hard. And, you know, we do a lot of miles and you don't have to be super fit because we can gear the trip towards people. But yeah, I, I, I'll, especially with my son taking more of this on, that'll let me help to price it down a little bit and make it more available to folks. And, and yeah, we'll be doing a lot of trips this year. So yeah, you bet. And they can get a hold of me at packoats.com. Gotcha. Yeah. And we'll list that in the description for anyone that's interested. Cool. I meant to cool. ask you earlier as kind of like a little bit of parallel or perpendicular transition here. What do you think of like, uh, you're very into, you know, I watch like a lot of your videos, like getting in touch with your animals, their different personality types, you know, like little things they like and don't like. And then just the general theme of just being in touch with nature or just one with the universe in general and being mm -hmm. part of that instead of like a separate entity from that. That's just right. from it. What's your take on the future direction of how like humanity is evolving and kind of what, what direction that's going to take? So, sorry, my pause is because I was checking in to see if I'm willing to share. Um, so, I have been uh, now seeking additional growth through uh, the use of uh, hallucinogenic therapy, things like ayahuasca and mm -hmm. psilocybin and those sorts of things. And I have now found kind of that pinnacle element. I've been a lifelong grower and I can say that without question that some parts of my mission has changed as a result of those interactions and, and doing those ceremonies because now it's about um, the ability to positively influence um, people through love. And I know that sounds corny as heck, but that's where it is. And, um, my interactions on a daily basis are rooted in love and being kind. And if I can be patient, kind, and loving, as a result, it sets a tempo and a temperament for the circle around me, which then sets that for the next circle around them. And I think the more people that become conscious of the fact that we are needing some sort of shift that involves kindness, that involves love, and that requires patience, the more people that are affected positively in that way, the more cumulative change we'll make on planet Earth. So energetics are such a part of that. So um, I was always aware of energy um, because in my family of origin to survive, I was raised in seven marriages, divorces, and lots of dysfunction. For me to survive, I had to be really tuned in on who was mad at each other, who, what, what to anticipate was the next dangerous event that was going to happen in my home as a kid. And so I became really tuned into energy. I don't think I ever recognized it as being energy until like my early 20s when I was in the public speaking realm and, and I was selling and I could collectively sense people's energy and give it back and move it in the direction it needed to for me to be able to close the deal or do whatever. Um, I became conscious of energy then, but when I sit in these ceremonies to know that there is an energy that flows through all of us that we communicate and the animals, um, I got a chance to talk to a world-renowned medium in that environment, and I got to ask her a question I've always wondered, which is, is the soul and the spirit the same thing? 
And, and her answer to that, and then this is a lady who has TED Talks and stuff. She's the real deal, right? And she said a soul, a dog has a soul, a goat has a soul, um, a cat has a soul, and we have a soul. And our souls are what collect past experiences and then remind us to not repeat the same error. But it's, it's much closer related to the human part of us. Our spirit is what is in us that is the divine entity, the divine light, connected and a part of whatever you want to call the spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, whatever you choose. And it's the divine being that's inside of us. And they're two different things. And our spirit speaks to us by making us deeply curious about the future. And so when we become really curious about something, that's our spirit saying, you should be going and looking in this direction. This is the path for you to make the next evolutionary step while you're here. And your soul is the one poking you in the ribs saying, dude, you did that last time. Remember that shit? Remember how it went? Remember how it felt? Don't do it again. Right? So what I'm choosing to try to do now collectively with energy is pay attention to the spirit and what direction I'm supposed to be going. As far as animals go, they certainly have energy, and I and I can sense it. I can sense the difference between male and female energy. I can sense the difference between self-serving and selfless energy. All those things have collective energy. And if we were all able to kind of walk the planet at once and embody love, kindness, and patience, all of a sudden, that would be an elemental shift in human beings that happened at once. And so I'm really invested in my little piece of that. That's why I think I, that's why I chose to speak to you about that. Um, you know, it, it runs risk for me to be judged for what I do and, and how I'm doing it. And, and, you know, in some ways I don't give a shit. I don't care. I want to be helpful. I want to, I want to have other people, you know, lead better lives and do what they need to do, but only because they bounced into me, not because I became something any more significant than somebody that they bounced off of right in a, in a loving kind and patient way so and and again i say all that saying i am the number one offender to fall down in that mission on a daily basis i can be tyrannical i can be i can be critical as shit um, my past life speaks for me in lots of ways that i wish it never did that scared little kid still scared of being criticized and he still knows how to be a piece of shit to people and make them feel bad but that doesn't mean I'm not hyper aware of it now and really own it and admit it and embody it and try to go back to what I know to be true for me today, which is to be kind, loving, and patience. So in terms of energetics and the flow of that, animals are part of that flow, humans are part of that flow, and the collective energy. I mean, I just literally had to turn off the TV. I was curious what happened in the elections, but I literally could feel the negative energy bleeding into my body and I felt myself turning grumpy. And I said, look, that's it. Shit's turning off. You know, we just, our major mass media sources have nothing for us but negative energy, make us scared, bow at the will of the sponsors so we watch the next commercial and I ain't playing and I hope other people don't play. Yeah, cool. Well, it was, honestly, it was great to meet you, man. I enjoyed like our short talk, like, uh, I don't know, like a few months ago. I forgot exactly when, so I appreciate it. You're doing that one and then getting on the show to do uh, this podcast as well. My pleasure. Yeah, make sure you let me know when it gets out. I'll put it out there. Cool. All right. Thank you, Mark. Do you have like any closing statements or any other projects you're working on that you want people to know about? Well, I think it's important for people to know that as a hunter, that there's the right way and the wrong way to do that. We're invested in, in conservation. There's no people that donate more time, money, and energy to the conservation of animals. 
I would challenge people in the general sector to challenge and 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 re and really think about their own beliefs that they've been told by somebody else how bad we are and go go out and go hunting yourself with somebody from heart, which is 99% of us. Unfortunately, hunters as a whole are like anybody else: Christians, politicians, uh, bodybuilders, whatever it is. It's always the jackass that gets paid attention to. It's always the jackass that gets held up as who then represents that group because it's what the media wants to point you at that mm -hmm. is representative. And it's the same with hunters. The guy who does it wrong is the one who gets the press and he certainly isn't representative of our group. So I'm kind of challenge your non-hunting viewership to, 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 to challenge themselves to think about the difference between eating a chicken and going out and hunting a pheasant, um, which is more honorable, you know, and, and, and challenge that for yourself as well. And then the last thing is to know that Yes, I own packgoats.com, and it's a blessing and a great business, and I love it, but I'm also a lifelong hunting consultant. And so people that want to call me and be, you know, go on their first elk hunt or their first deer hunt, I'm the guy you call to make sure you're with a good outfitter in the right place, and I can help to guide you through that entire process. That's what I've done most of my professional life is, is a hunting consultant, and my fee to my clients is free, and um, you know, the outfitter pays me as a referral fee. So I'm like a free advocate, free service to the clients who call me. And that company is called Top End Adventures. But if, if you Google anything to do with pack goats, you're going to find me. If you Google me, you'll find my Top End Adventures as well. I'm really, you know, I have a, a, a YouTube channel on both and I make short films in the hunting industry. I, I'm releasing a new one now that is a bear hunting film that will challenge most people's belief about how amazing bear hunting can be when done with the heart like I do. So I think people would like that too. Cool. And I really like your channel with the pack goes. So I've been I probably watched like almost every video on that one. So oh, I cool. appreciate you working on that. They're actually like pretty entertaining. You'd be surprised. Uh, oh, some cool. people are probably yeah. listening like, oh he's just hanging out with goats and it's like, but it's like the way you narrate it and explain it, it's like it makes it like very entertaining. So Wow, I'm glad you think so. I'm glad. Good. Thanks. Um, thank you, man. Thank you again and um have a good weekend, okay? Yep. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for tuning in.